stature of Leicester City has changed dramatically since the 2010 takeover by the King Power Group and their unforgettable Premier League win in 2016. Back in the early 1990s, Leicester hadn't won a major honour since the 60s when Gordon Banks was playing for the club, nor finished in the top half of the top flight since the 1970s when Frank Worthington led the line. In the early years of the Premier League era, Leicester were a regular fixture in the playoff race. Their one season in the top flight ended in relegation under Mark McGee, with Leicester a full 19 points from safety. So when Leicester came back into the top flight through the playoffs once again, no one really expected much more from them than another season of struggle. The new manager, after all, had a reasonably successful spell in the conference and the lower divisions of the Football League, but his spell with Norwich had lasted only six months. An unproven manager, then, at a club who had shown little staying power in the top flight. And yet, Leicester were on the verge of what was, to then, the most successful period in the club's history. They'd spend the next few seasons as one of the great spoilers of the domestic game, upsetting teams with far bigger budgets and reputations to the point that it stopped being a shock. They'd finish in the top half every year without fail, and they'd win two League Cups and reach a third final. And as for that manager, Martin O'Neill would go on to take the Celtic job, win multiple honours, and would be linked to most of the vacancies at the biggest clubs in the country for much of the next decade. Conversely, within two years of leaving the club, Leicester had been relegated, and with the exception of one ill-fated bounce-back campaign, they'd not play another Premier League game until 2014. So, with that intro out of the way, Maz and Neil, welcome back to our 50th episode. Um, I guess we have to say that while this Leicester team had some really good players, and we can touch on that in a moment, we'll go through a lot of those those names as, as we go along, but in many, many ways, this is one of the ultimate examples of a team being much, much better than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Could be the ultimate example at, at this point in time. Workmanlike, I think, is the kind term. Yeah, I, I think... They were a coming force, I think. Um, you could see them progressively doing better in the in the first division, in the older Ensley as it was then. And, you know, under Brian Little, they were unfortunate to lose to Blackburn when Kelly Dalglish's Blackburn went up through the playoffs. Um, and then they kind of they they kind of made it made it in, didn't they? I think in '94. Um, but then Brian Little obviously takes the Villa job. And that kind of ends up dooming them and they, they kind of go straight back down. And so you could see they were in those clubs that were either going to become one of the yo-yo clubs. And we know the sorts of teams we're thinking about there that kind of bounce between those two divisions. They're kind of, you know, too good for one and not good enough for the other. Or they had a chance to kind of solidify themselves there. And O'Neill did have a reputation for being a kind of manager on the rise because he'd obviously played for Brian Clough and there was that sense that well you can't have played for Brian Clough without having picked a few things up and so I do remember there being quite a bit of optimism that when they went up with O'Neill that they had a a good shot to at least stay up and of course they exceeded expectations didn't they and they ended up um, having uh, three or four top 10 finishes in a couple of league cups so you know uh, it was a really successful period all, all, all around and and really you know y- you can put most of that down to the way that O'Neill set them up developed the mentality and essentially did a bit of a mini Brian Clough at Derby or Forest at Leicester and I guess if you look at Derby and Forest when Clough took them over they were probably in similar positions to how O'Neill found Leicester and similarly, without that kind of messianic figure, Leicester did struggle in the years after him. I think there was a lot of emphasis on 
how well he would do given that the Norwich experience had kind of flamed out but that was seen to a large degree as a bit of a personality clash between the manager and the chairman and it was seen as a tough place to go so I suppose there's a balance there between him having something to prove still and thinking it could go either way you know if he if he doesn't prove it then they could be straight back down but there was always more of a chance the one big kind of difference I suppose in terms of what we're saying there in the Clough and O'Neill eras is that eventually maybe not immediately but eventually the Clough team starts to buy superstars and that's something this Leicester team never really does they're always shopping in a very different different supermarket if you like they're never going to bring in the likes of Shilton and uh, you know the big names like that in fact quite a lot of the personnel changes over the course of the four years and there's not an awful lot of stability or ever presence and constants to this side other than O'Neill and I think it probably is one of the examples not only of the team being better than some of its parts but a team that takes its identity from the manager which is probably a link back to that Clough thing so in some ways there are some notable differences and other ways some some kind of similarities I'm just looking now at the start of the team that starts the playoff final in 1996 to get promoted and there's quite a lot of symmetry with the team that will keep them up so at this point they've already got in place Simon Grayson, Steve Walsh, Mike Whitlow, Gary Parker, Muzzy it, Neil Lennon, Emil Heskey and Steve Claridge all start that final they're all going to be really important kind of players over the next year so in a sense it just reinforces this point of this is not a team of superstars this is a a first division team for the lack of a better description and yet they are going to really upset the apple cart in the following season I think yeah every now and again you get one like that don't you you get you get that first division team that, that comes up and without many changes because they play so well together they 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 go up and they don't really struggle they take to it it's no secret that that second tier of English football whatever it's called at any particular time it is a really tough one to get out of and while you're talking about an era where you do see a lot of uh, yo-yo teams I think maybe sometimes it, it, it's teams changing their game as they go up because it is it is a very different league. But if you've got that spirit, you're true to yourself. You've got strong, strong players. There's no reason why why they can't keep you in a, in a decent position there. And I think Leicester Leicester is the one team that proved that. I think you know it's it's a, a proven formula for teams that do want to get out is to is to put together those players that have got some experience of both divisions and also to have some young players coming through that can provide a bit of a spark so I mean for Leicester Neil Lennon and um, Marzi Ezzet are the two uh, along with Emil Heskey who uh, they're the kind of young players that, that had potential to be more than just solid pros and so you've got your um, your Graysons and your Walshers. Um, it's funny to think that the previous playoff final in 94, um, Steve Walsh played that final up front. It was that sort of weird era of lots of centre-halves playing up front and then going back to centre-half in the end. But yeah, it's 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 certainly a team where they didn't disrupt it too much when they went up. And I mean, we've seen in the recent years, haven't we? I mean, Fulham, when they tried to, to spend 60 to 100 million quid on a load of new players and None of them gelled and they just went straight back down miserably. It does just show you that although people always say like you have to invest, quite often it can be really disruptive to uh, to, to overinvest and displace all those people that got you there. 
it's one of the, the things that was leveled at Villa when we spent a lot as well in the, the year after Fulham did it was that we were doing a Fulham and I think the difference was that Fulham tried to buy an entire new starting 11 and Villa tried to round out the squad when we didn't disrupt in the same way what had worked for us in the second tier and obviously Leicester are doing this to an even lesser degree uh, it was less of a you know kind of received wisdom back then that you needed to spend or you were going to immediately go back down in the mid 1990s as the it's that really that decade from 2000 to 2010 where a lot of that changes and and we see so many teams come up and go back down without really making much of a an impact that that becomes the the norm i don't want to go through the leicester kind of season in too much detail here because i don't think that's overly productive we're going to look at four and it'll take forever if we do that what i would just wanted to do quickly though is, is point out that they as a promoted team, they do finish in the top half. I wanted to rattle off some of the the wins that they achieved because I think this highlights the kind of results they were capable of and the teams they were upsetting much better than going through it. So after about six games or so where they've won one and drawn a couple, they go on a little run where they win away at Spurs, beat Leeds at home, beat Newcastle not long after at home, beat Villa away, and you know Newcastle and Villa are both top four teams in this era. Um, they're winning again away at Middlesbrough, and a result that's probably going to presage some of the stuff we're going to talk about later. Uh, they double Villa later on in the season. They've got a little run where they don't lose for like three or four games, including that win at Villa. And then they smash Blackburn, who are still only a couple of years removed from a title win themselves on the last day. So this is not a team that is just taking points from the sides around them. They're real, uh, to use a metaphor that you used a few episodes back, I think we talked about Burnley at, at this point, uh, real kind of pirates who are going to muscle out supposedly better teams and you know take what they, they want from them. They really got on the team skin. And again, partly, you know, O'Neill is a, a combative manager, isn't he? You know, he's... He's the type of manager that has a pop at referees and is really active on the touchline. And, 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 you know, again, English football in the mid nineties was, was pretty blood and thunder. You know I mean? We, we had this beginning of that continental influence, but as we've talked about players like Dennis Bergkamp put themselves about, you know, they were, they weren't shrinking violet. Gianfranco Zeller had found himself being kicked into the air from one corner of Italy to the next. So it's not like he was coming without any illusions of what was going to happen. So it it was a very different environment, but but certainly Leicester were wind up merchants. You know they had players all over the pitch who were streetwise, um, smart, adept to the dark arts, two enormous centre halves, and they made teams uncomfortable. And they could play a bit as well. I think probably the best analogy for them would be some of those Allardyce Bolton teams that, that we talked about um, in a in a previous season, and that you know they they were probably much better footballing size than you remember them being. But because they upset the big boys so much, they kind of got a bit of a reputation for being, I guess, effective rather than rather than pretty. But, you know, they had people that could play. Yeah, they, they definitely they were a massive, massive team. Very, very physical. You know, even, you know, as you say, it it, it wasn't as rare as it is now in football to have a physical team back at that. But even by those standards at that time they almost felt like a bit of a a bit of a throwback more to the 70s I guess you'd say with their physicality however yes they could play they had some exciting players it's one of those teams where their exciting players just weren't afraid to mix it up which is certainly something you could say for those 
early year Wenger teams, you know, no no one at Arsenal in, in, in that period was scared to put a foot in, whereas later era Wenger, it was like everyone was scared to put a foot in. It's something there. I guess, you know, you could say, you could say Bolton, you could also say Real Madrid, who are <laughs> very much a team who, who play to the dark arts as well and, and play a very physical brand of football in addition to having a lot of talent. So, yes, uh, there wasn't quite a Zidane in there, however. But, you know, is it? And Lennon, as, as, as Neil was saying earlier, were two very, very good, exciting young footballers. Um, and, yeah, they, they could do it, you know. I, I think you look at Emil Heskey alone and you do think of Heskey as this big, brute, humongous player. But he was a very clever player at times. And sometimes that's forgotten. So I, I think that does get forgotten with a lot of these players. And, you know, ultimately, it's going to get forgotten. However, you know, it, it's they could play. They, they definitely could play. And I think the thing with Heskey is that I think that there's a sense of almost a, sense, a little bit of a sense of disappointment around Heskey because he was seen as being, you know, a really exciting player, like fast, direct, score goals. And, and when he goes to Liverpool, he obviously develops into this foil for Michael Owen, which is what the team needed him to be. Um, and his game, you know, evolved into into a sort of, I don't know, budget version of what Benzema used to do for, for, for Ronaldo. <laughs> you know, he, he was making all the space for Owen to do the running into. Um, but it meant that his goal and, and assist numbers, you know, and I guess we, we're moving into a point where football starts getting more obsessed with, with numbers. Um, weren't the same and so I guess it became this this narrative you know 5-1 even Heskey scored and and all of that kind of stuff which was really to to belie the point of he just developed his game in a different direction to what it was when he was a 18 19 year old coming through the ranks but certainly for this Leicester team you know he is the spearhead and um, and he was an exciting player but he just developed his game in a different way later on and that's how people remember him was for those Liverpool years I guess. And one of the things that he has here is an adoring public because he's come through. He's a kind of local heroes and come through the ranks. He's putting himself about really physical and it's slightly, slightly more provincial teams. That kind of thing is more appreciated than it is at top sides where you're expected to do that and give massive goal returns and all that. But he's also got one of these players that you mentioned can play and isn't necessarily the biggest and and dominating teams with physicality but Gary Parker is rolling back the years when they first come up uh he's obviously moved on from Villa I've never really understood why Ron Atkinson went off him it's it's Brian Little that moves him on eventually as part of the move to make the Villa side younger but he shows for a couple of years afterwards that he's still got plenty in the tank and in that first season in the Premier League right the way up to the League Cup final I'm sure we're going to talk about the League Cup more in a moment He's, you know, absolutely pulling the strings. So you've got this wonderful dynamic where Izzet and Lennon are kind of playing behind him and doing a sort of interchangeable job where they can pick up for each other, fill in for the other. One goes forward, one stays back, all that kind of stuff. And they, they can do all that and do a lot of the running. And then Parker in his 31st, 32nd year, whatever he was, is able to kind of pull the strings and interchange with Heskey and Claridge. So if Heskey does pull out to the wing, which we'll see, uh, not just at Leicester, but at Liverpool as well. Parker can push up and become a second striker and so on. So there's a a fluidity to the side that I don't think is always 
evident when we talk about how organized a team is. You can often think the shape as being very static. Uh, and this wasn't the case with this side at all. No, and O'Neill's teams generally were always very flexible in that way, like his Celtic team. Obviously, having talents like Henrik Larsson was always going to help, wasn't it? But you think about those players that played up top for him and in midfield for him at Celtic, like Larsson, Sutton, you know, they were also making space for midfield runners and pulling out and, and, and stuff like that. So his teams have always had that kind of hallmark. I think about Ashley Young, like a young Ashley Young at, at, at Villa in that sort of 2009-10 type of period when he was, you know, he really looked like a, a real, real find, real, real top, top player. And again, that was because the way that O'Neill set his teams up allowed for those kind of players to find that space. So I think he's always been a manager that, that had had that that skill of setting teams up that way. So we ran through a lot of the players that were there in the playoff final. And just before we do move on to the Cups, we'll have a look at who they were bringing in at the start of the season. So Spencer Pryor comes in from Norwich, and this is a player that had basically seen his career start to run aground, but O'Neill had brought him back into the first team in his brief spell at Norwich and then immediately kind of signs him when he gets the opportunity to Leicester. Uh, he's a fairly solid kind of pro as a defensive player. will start some quite important games for the club. Brought him for about 600 grand. Then perhaps more significantly, uh, Casey Keller comes in from Millwall and will displace Kevin Poole as their number one. And Ian Marshall is the other big name that comes in. And he's not going to command a start in place all that often for Leicester, but he rounds out the the side, giving them a bit more uh, firepower up front. And he comes in for about 800 grand. So again, it's not, you know, some of these are going to be important players, but they're not massive transfers. They're not superstars. They are buys from the lower divisions or, or players that have just been relegated. Yes. Limited funds on decent players who can fill out. That's what you'd say, isn't it? You know, Keller, when you look at it, that, that's got to go down as an, a fantastic buy when you think about it. A couple of squad players, one up top, one at the back, just adding some some able bodies to a to a, to a totally different campaign that you, you've got coming up. And there's no window back then. You can obviously buy through the whole season. So it's actually in the winter that most of the kind of eye-catching ones in hindsight are done because they spend 1.6 million, which most money they spend all season on Matt Elliott from Oxford United, who will obviously go on to be a great pro over the whole course of the whole run that we're talking about here. Uh, Robert Ullathorne comes back from Spain, from from Osasuna. And Steve Guppy signs from Port Vale. And uh, these are players that in some cases won't be able to play in the Cups because they are cup tied, haven't played for their previous clubs. But they're going to be crucial to the whole story over the rest of the rest of the run. So um, I keep teasing it shall we shall we look at the league cup because they do have a ridiculous record over the next four years in the league cup <laughs> it's crazy it's like you know you think about guardiola in the league cup guardiola you know, so how many times city won the league cup in the last five or six years it's ridiculous but uh but yeah leicester probably their only rivals in that sense yes yeah, so they start out because it, is it still two legs in the second round it can't be can it these days uh but they start out with home and away victories over scarborough beat york city away and then I don't know if it's quite such a shot because uh, Man United were doing what, te- even back then, Man United doing what teams do now. You know, they weren't probably not playing a the strongest eleven that they had. I'm guessing anyway uh, in this game. But yeah, Leicester turned over Man United in 
round four. Ipswich in the quarterfinal and then two-legged semi-finals. And this is probably quite typical. It's a um, nil-nil and one-all after extra time with Wimbledon. If there's, <laughs> if there's two games and two scorelines <laughs> that kind of sum up this team better, I can't think of it. Oh, neither of them are thrillers, I seem to recall. Um, yeah, so I guess that went to... I guess that must have gone to Penn. Oh, no, I guess they won on away goals, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's right, because it's they weren't Wembley semi-finals back then, so no. I don't think they, they're still not, are they, in the League Cup? It's uh, it's still semi, two legs it's in still, the semi. Still right? two it's legs. Home and away, is it? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Didn't the didn't the final of the League Cup used to be two legs at one point? <laughs> if you go back to the sixties, yeah, yeah, it did. Crazy. I yeah. mean, I guess Continental Cup competitions still aren't. I think I think um, you know the Kings Cup in Spain stuff. At least until really recently, was 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 two legs. And the yeah, Coppa Italia used, yeah, yeah. Coppa Italia used to be as well, definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they get they go into the final, and then it, it was it was really strange for you to talk about the nineties now, like the idea of a cup replay, you know, and a, and a cup final replay in particular sounds ever so quaint, doesn't it? We've talked about a few over the course of this um, this podcast, but yeah, they, the final ends up being a one all draw. Uh, Heskey and Ravanelli on on the score sheet in the uh, in the final, and Both. so. Uh, both in extra time yeah and that game is again another example i suppose of how o'neill was kind of playing spoiler to a degree because the they get where they get through having lost the the earlier game in the league to middlesbrough they put pontus cormac on janino and just say don't come off his shoulder and he just man marks him pretty much out of the game. There's the odd flash here and there. There's a moment where he's called offside when he's quite clearly on. But really, they do take Janino out of the game. And they still do rely on Ravinelli, missing quite a few good chances. But with a very, very late, ugly, ugly goal, they're able to upset a lot of the neutrals and take this to a replay at Hillsborough. And um, it's Steve Clarence that does the business in the replay again in extra time <laughs> i mean to, to get to this final leicester must have played about i don't know four days worth of fixtures um it is crazy when people talk about fixture congestion nowadays because of the, the europa league or the europa conference league or whatever it's a bit like you forget how how draining the domestic competitions used to be on teams yeah it was something else wasn't it, it it's uh Certainly the good old days, and you know it, it's why United had probably got to the stage where they they did rest players and the bigger teams. But that's that's still a massive result, isn't it? Even yeah, taking I mean, taking out United second string on the way to it, and then yeah, once once you get to the semi-finals, it was a grind. But why weren't four games? Four games, three of 120 minutes, averaging less than a goal a game. Four conceding less less than a goal every two against. I mean, yeah, you, you, you're talking about grinding your way to victory. That's it right there. And uh, extra time and Claridge, Claridge bangs it in. They win the cup. Um, shout out to Claridge. Is there more of a journeyman footballer than than, than Steve Claridge? How many teams does he play for? All of them. I'm gonna do a quick count while you discuss. What's really impressive about Claridge is that he's the sort of player that I can't remember at the top level ever really kind of dominating a game, but he was so good in his own way that he could always contribute to 
teams, even if he was clearly out muscle, clearly outsized, not going to match them for pace. There was something about his ability to read a game and his work ethic that meant he was never out of it for long. And yeah, he had an annoying habit of popping up and scoring goals that you didn't necessarily want him to score. I remember him doing it in a game I was actually at in this season, which was Leicester and and Villa, and they turned us over, I mentioned it a moment ago, uh, 3-1 at Villa Park. I can't say it wasn't particularly deserved either. Uh, But yeah, Claridge, just one of those goals that he must have scored a thousand of over the course of his career, where he's just in the right place to take advantage of a defensive mistake. Fernando Nelson, of all people, failing to clear the ball, and it's in the back of the net. And he scored the playoff winner for them as well. So it's, it's you know, he was a, a clutch, clutch player for them. And you know, I was really fond of those English footballers that don't look like they should be footballers. You know, they look like they should, they should be down the pub. Um, and, and, you know, he was he was certainly one of those. But very late into his career, he was still he was still scoring goals because he just had that instinct of the goal poacher. And, you know, that's something that just doesn't just doesn't go away seemingly for for those kind of players even even when their legs go yeah a quick count um and this might be wrong because uh, it's obviously a quick count and finding the duplicates might be a bit hard but uh 30 stints with 22 different clubs wow is what is what i've got from there from 83 to 2017 that 2017 one he must have been player manager yeah it was he's managing salisbury and um, had a uh, a single appearance in 2017, five years after he seemingly retired. <laughs> so they were obviously having uh, obviously having a bit of a crisis, and he and he came in to play a game. Having said that, I saw, I saw some random charity game the other day uh, where Rivaldo was playing, and he, to be fair, he looked like he could still play. <laughs> <laughs> so to come on to the next season then because Leicester have obviously now got the League Cup in the bag they they did pretty well I think in the FA Cup that year as well but they didn't trouble the very latest rounds uh, Leicester have put the trophy drought that had gone on since the 1960s to bed with this uh, win and the biggest shock of the following season is that they actually go out in early in both rounds of the cup so it's an unremarkable season in that respect but 10th overall more draws than wins and losses, which, again, I think tells you everything that you need to know about this side and how they were set up for the most part. Uh, only three defeats at home, which is you know a great record. Actually, seven wins away, more wins away than they got at home. I won't rattle through them all, but there are some particularly eye-catching ones. Winning away at Anfield is probably the pick of them, actually, or winning away at Old Trafford as well. And there's no way that you can put that down to Man United not playing their strongest team in a cup competition. So, yeah, some some big results there. Turned out by Grimsby in the third round of the League Cup, so there'd be no chance of repeating the heroics. Uh, just to move through this season fairly quickly, unless there's anything what people want to bring up, I'll just look at some of the names that are coming in and going out of the club. So Simon Grayson moves on to Aston Villa. Mike Whitlow moves on to Bolton. Mark Robbins, who we obviously spoke about in the Norwich episode we did a couple of weeks ago he's leaving the club now Claridge moves on to another of these 22 clubs uh, goes on to Wolves and coming in in their place are some names that are really going to be important over the next few years you get Robbie Savage coming in from Crew. Uh, obviously he'd been on the Man United books before going through Crew, which is uh, a fairly common route in the northwest ex-Villa player Graham Fenton moves on from Blackburn Rovers for quite a lot of money 1.1 million Tony Cotty who was 
seemingly been playing forever by this point. Uh, comes in from somewhere that he'd been playing abroad. Uh, Peggy Arfaxad comes in as another goalkeeper. He was a free transfer from France. And uh, Theo Zagarakis from Greece. So a lot of these names that are going to be you know, quite crucial over the next couple of years and really prominently associated with the rest of this Leicester side. I mean, Savage is obviously the one that really catches the eye there, I guess, in that respect. But so, you know, it's a decent transfer business once again, as the side is scaling up with every window. Yeah, I mean, mixed bag, isn't it? But, you know, Savage, uh, you know, despite not being the person who kind of who who brought them up and got that first league cup with, with the team you know I, I think Robbie Savage is certainly someone uh, very much epitomizes this uh, this era of Leicester City and most teams that you want to talk about have that one player that everybody hates and as such everyone at the club absolutely loves and you kind of want to name that player after Robbie Savage, don't you? Because, I mean, he's a knob, isn't he? Let's face it. <laughs> we can't mince words on that. But he put himself about, he, he's obviously very outspoken. And you don't know how, I don't know how much of that played a part in him not being one of that, that United class of 92 to actually come through the ranks there and, and do stuff for them. Also, he played in a position that was absolutely stacked uh, yeah, for United. Yeah. I mean, yeah. bear in mind, we're talking about a United team that would eventually sign arguably the best midfielder in the world at that point in in one of the run. And he couldn't settle in that team either. So it, it was tough. But, you know, he gritted his teeth. He, he went the old crew way, the famous old crew way, which has made plenty of superstars back in those days. And, you know. He went on to have a really, really good career, and he he was fantastic for this team. To sign him for four hundred thousand pounds—that's that's an amazing bit of business, isn't it? He always had that chip on his shoulder about not making it United. I think that's probably what made him the player that he was. United, at the point where he was released, their first choice midfield was 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 Paul Ernst and Roy, and Roy Keane, and that that is not a duo that you're likely to be displacing anytime soon if you've got. You know, if you've got in the same class, then, then you can see why it was that he had to move on. But clearly he had a lot to prove. He was, a, he was an all-action player. He was everywhere. He was disruptive. You know, he got crucial goals. And he, he had that same spirit that Steve Walsh had, that Matty Elliott had, that Muzzy as it had, that Neil Lennon had. And it all kind of, you know, the team spirit and the will to win that that team had was absolutely enormous. And you could see that, you know, even later in Savage's career, when he was a championship kind of level footballer in the later years of his career, the championship teams were falling over each other to try and sign him because he just offered that, you know, that leadership and that kind of will to win and and, and that mentality. Um, And you can never hold that against him it's pretty funny like if you look at the list of um premier league yellow cards so savage um is only bettered in yellow cards by lee bowyer kevin davis and paul skulls it's a rogue scary there isn't it yeah. <laughs> so, what a one of them down the dark alley 
89 yellow cards uh, in in his uh, his period of time playing in the Premier League. So that that tells you a story. But again, it's an era where you, you do have to assert yourself. And um, I mean, you, you think about Neil Lennon as well. He was very very streetwise. Um, had that famous you know the famous incident where um, Alan Shearer kicked him in the face because Lennon had been winding him up all game. Um, they were a team that could get under your skin, and that was that was key to their success. And I don't think, as Baz was saying a moment ago, few players have ever connoted that more than Robbie Savage. You know, there's something about him that seemed to to wind people up, and he just you carried that like energy with him. I sometimes make a a, a joke that he's very anti-football. Uh, I think that's probably me being a bit silly, but he didn't have quite the same technical ability as Lennon or is it the, the kind of players that he's in and around for that matter but he could still contribute in other ways and just that kind of tireless determination to shut people like me up I think carried him a long way what we see in the following season is that Leicester start to spend a bit more money it's not huge sums but they've now established themselves as you know not only a top flight team but a top half team and they're able to attract a bit more in the in the way of who they can bring in so jerry taggart is a big sign for the match he comes on a free transfer but they're actually paying two million to chelsea for frank sinclair two million to bolton for arna goodlaugson and then andy impey also comes in from west ham for about one and a half million and there's not an awful lot going out at the same time so so there's a sense here that there's this kind of settled side and they're only adding there's not a lot of business in or out you start to look up with some regularity and they're going to have another good long run in the cup and finish in the top half once again. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's still a very stable evolution, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of moving a few squad players out and bringing a few squad players in really, isn't it? Um, nothing, you know, I don't know the sort of what you imagine as the core Leicester city 11 kind of remains, doesn't it? And And it's just, it's just tweaks to that. Yeah, I guess you, you've kind of got Steve Walsh on his, his knees are going at this point a bit, aren't they? So he's not playing as much, which I guess is is why they've brought in uh, Jerry Taggart. They're, they're probably looking at the long term there with that signing. Yeah, and I think he is going to take over even by the end of the O'Neill era that he will be one of the, the regulars. At the other end of the field, this is the era where the Cotty deal really pays off. And he scores a few goals in the 97-98 season, but it's actually Marshall who is really putting them in along with Heskey at this point. But then this year, uh, Cotty actually bags 16, which considering he must have been well into his 30s, let's say. I think that's you know pretty good return. You'd there. think so. It, it, it's weird, isn't it? You 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 got you got a nice little contrast here. You have got Gary Parker who looked like he was forty when he was twenty, and you got <laughs> Tony Cotty who looks like he was twenty when he was forty. Yeah, yeah, quite. And you just had that like we were saying with Claridge, very similar players in one respect, which is that they both had a prescient ability to be in the right place when the ball was going to fall. Cotty, absolute poacher, Cotty, wasn't he? He <laughs> he could. He could smell where that ball was going to land. Definitely a fox in the box, Tony Coy. Surprisingly good in the air for such a small player. He was obviously such a young kid when he came through at West Ham. He was such a young boy um, and he went to Everton very young. 
So even though you kind of think, God, Tony Cotty's banging in goals in 1998, actually, he he was a veteran at this point, but he was probably only in his early 30s, wasn't he? I mean, I guess nowadays you wouldn't even think twice about that because he, he, yeah, he was kind 32 of... 32 he would have been that season. Yeah, because he kind of came through oh, wow. West Ham in the mid-80s, right? So... Yeah, it, it, it's like, and he was always a kind of player that was quick over five, ten yards. And, um, you know, that kind of little acceleration or burst that kind of Fox in the box striker needs. Like, it's not like someone like, um, I don't know, like an, an Elk or an Henri that's kind of, you know, magnificent over a kind of uh, a kind of a longer sprint. It's just they just need that little bit of space and, and they've got their opportunity. So, yeah, it, it's kind of not as surprising as you might think. I would have pegged him as at least three years older just because you say he'd been around so long. But as he, I guess he must have been a a kid straight out of the academy playing for he West was, Ham. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he was like, um, I va- very vaguely remember it. You know, he was kind of, uh, you know, one of those real kind of uh, prodigies that, that they kind of just fast right straight into the first team, which West Ham did a lot, I guess, with lots of players at the time. True. Uh, so just to bring us back to the, the competitions then. Uh, Again, we're not going to spend too much time going through the the Leicester League season. It was another kind of season in the same sort of vein. They finished in pretty much dead mid-table against teams with much bigger budgets, picking up kind of results that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But it's not a surprise by this point. You know, they double Liverpool again. You're becoming real antagonists, I suppose, for uh, the Gerard Houllier team during this period. They do get knocked out of the FA Cup in the fourth round by Coventry in a local derby, a result that would not have sat well because it was also at Leicester. Um, oh, that's probably the low point of the season other than a 6-2 hammering by by Man United um, as they go en route to the treble. But they do go long into the the League Cup. They they beat Chesterfield, who had been knocked out of the, the same competition by Middlesbrough just before that final uh, a couple of years earlier. Beat Charlton away, Leeds, and this is obviously a good Leeds team that we've spoken about before at home, uh, Blackburn at home. And then eventually they come, having gone through all these various other kind of games, they come up against Tottenham, Neil. Yeah, I mean, goodness me. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it was, you know, a funny old time to be a Spurs fan. It's kind of, it's the George Graham era has begun, which obviously I think, you know, we've all got, um, you know, quite a lot of mixed feelings about. Um, but of course, you know, they did. He did have that one success. So I suppose you have to allow it. Nothing to say about the game. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's um, it's funny, really. Like, I think think back to it I just remember thinking we were really really um you know really really over cautious and that it was just kind of pretty typical of um of, of George Graham football at the time all of these games to a degree are fairly cautious affairs and the difference because I, I look back over the Middlesbrough one in the, the build up to this episode and they are talking, the commentators are talking all the way through about how the game is quite dull and isn't going to be appealing to the neutral. And I'm comparing it to modern football and finding it absolutely exhilarating by contrast. Whereas I'm not sure I would if I'd gone back and watched the Tottenham game. No, no, it certainly, it certainly wasn't one 
um, <laughs> certainly wasn't one which which I kind of you know think back to with um, you know with with any great fondness as a kind of uh, as a viewing spectacle. But yeah, 90th minute winner, um, and um, you know it was it was a trophy, but uh, not one that I uh, not one that I necessarily kind of think oh well this is my favourite memory as a Spurs fan. No, fair enough. And it is worth pointing out that although Leicester are disappointed not to add to their trophy tally at this point, you know, three finals in three years, sorry, two finals in three years is actually a pretty good return given that Leicester hadn't, you know, won anything since, as I said in the intro, Gordon Banks was playing for them. Uh, they are going to make another charge at it the following season as well. So it's not the last time. Uh, there's a few changes going into this season Casey Keller has obviously been a good servant for them but he's going to Spain to Rio Vallecano and they bring in a how old would he have been 33 34 year old Tim Flowers from Blackburn for about a million quid and he's really the only big bit of business that they do in the summer it's again quite a subtle team there are going to be some other moves later on in the season but broadly speaking change of goalkeeper and it's as you were and they're going out to do the same thing again and yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to do what I've done for the last couple of years and say it's another pretty typical season in terms of where they, they finish. They do slightly better this time rather than finish ninth or tenth. They actually come eighth, which makes it their best finish ever, I want to say, uh, at least to that point, because we all know what's going to happen 15 years or so later. There are some big wins, some big points. It's not a shock at this point. It's certainly not a shock to see them turning over, you know, teams that finish above them like like Villa and so on. And yeah, we could dwell on all that, but we won't because we've got a picture of what the team is. Let's come to the League Cup. And well, both cups they actually go quite far in this time. The first round is against Crystal Palace, and they have to overcome a bit of a wobble because they have one of my favourite things ever in football where they have to have an outfield player go in between the sticks so i forget i think arfaxad comes off early on and they send on flowers and flowers gets injured and so theo zagarakis has to go in goal and they promptly can see two to draw three all with uh, with crystal palace it's mad isn't it it's a mad tie because it finishes like seven five on aggregate <laughs> like, which is just ridiculous like you think about all those low scoring games we talk about with Leicester and then over two legs with Palace it, it's it's uh it's seven five to them um four two in the second leg so it's a pretty wild start to the competition but um it kind of re- reverts the type a bit more in the the next couple of rounds because they they kind of have a fairly straightforward outing against Grimsby two now and then they um end up having to beat Leeds on pens after a, a nil nil draw. Yeah, yeah. I remember a couple of things to to add in there. In that four two where they do put Palace out, I remember a great goal. I think it was um, Fenton, uh, who scores an absolute cracker. And then the penalty shootout was it Lee Bowyer who ended up missing the decisive penalty? I think that seems right. Uh, but after that, things go crazy again. They end up drawing three all with Kevin Keegan's Fulham in round five. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a Kevin Keegan team, so <laughs> kind of, uh, you kind of expect that, don't you? Um, oh God, Paul Pescisolido, what a uh, what a world! And Jeff Horsfield. Are there two more Fulham football players around than Paul Pescisolido and Jeff Horsfield? Honestly, um, definitely a blast from the past. Those two. 
<laughs> just like screams Leicester, uh, sorry, Fulham, doesn't it? Um, and then, of course, uh, the next round, of course, is against um, Villa over two legs. And a Villa, Villa, again, a team that was doing well in the League Cup kind of seemingly year after year. Yeah, we'd done really well in the mid-90s. And then we go off the boil in the Cups for a couple of years. This is... Yeah, we did we did well in both cups this season. I think I think we also reached the semi final of the FA Cup. Uh, no, we reached the final of the FA Cup, of course. Uh, that was the uh, year we lost to Chelsea. So we did all right. We were less able as a cup team than Leicester because we were on paper a better side, but prone to underperformance. And as you know, with cups, if it only takes one bad round and you're out. Whereas Leicester didn't have so many ups and downs. There was a solidity to them and uh, something that made them perfect for cup football. And yeah, we I could only manage nil-nil at, at home. And then in a two-legged tie, you know, the odds are, are against you. And it was uh, Matt, Matt Elliott, who was by this point a really free-scoring defender. Uh, I've lost track of the number of goals he manages to actually hit uh, for, for the club. Uh, he anticipates what he's about to do in the final and uh, scores uh, to put them through. And they get there against Tranmere, which when they do play Tranmere, it would obviously lower league opposition because they've never played in the Premier League. Uh, it means that once again, much like the the Middlesbrough game, Leicester don't have popular sentiment on their side, which is probably exactly how they, they want it because they probably want that us against the world feeling. Yeah, absolutely. They 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 reveled in being the spoilers, didn't they? Is there any more Leicester City of this period kind of? And actually, you, you could probably say, to be honest, about that 2016 title-winning side <laughs> is that is that they they reveled in being in being the spoilers, like someone like Jamie Vardy that come up through the you know come up through the non-league system. You know, it, it just it was a team of of underdog spirit, and I guess that was the 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 one connecting line you could draw between these kind of two eras but but yeah i mean there's no more leicester city uh way to score than kind of big matt elliott on the stroke of half time as well um and then just being able to shut up shop and um and shut villa out and you know put themselves a, a kind of quite unlikely final against against trammy rovers mike d must have been buzzing <laughs> i mean a young was mike a- d <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a period of a lot of success for Tranmere when when John Aldridge was manager because we'd obviously played them in the semi-final of the League Cup a few years earlier. So five or six years of pretty good times compared with all that's come subsequently. Uh, I remember the there's a couple of things that jump out at me. Obviously, Matt Elliott gets all the, the plaudits, uh, rightly so, for, for putting away the goals. Uh, Steve Guppy getting a, a big assist is one thing. Full credit to Tranmere for getting back into the game when they've already had a man sent off who was, I believe, a young Clint Hill. And then the other thing I really remember it for is that Alan Wilkie, the referee, had to go off injured, which is another one of these <laughs> bizarre things that you don't see happen too often, but certainly not in a final. And yeah, another header then just to to kind of settle it. And I think, was that another guppy assist, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's, it's funny. It's funny to think about you know, Matt Elliott, three goals in the space of, of two really important games, like uh, just shows what an integral player he was for them, really. Absolutely. He goes on to obviously have a, a wonderful, wonderful career. And you've got to look at that amount of money that would have seemed like a lot for a lower league centre half in 1997. And I mean, he just paid them back in many times over, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. 
so that's really the the end of the the era to be honest uh there's you know there's a few things that we could have spoken about gloss over quickly i mean they they have bought in darren Eady, who obviously is quite a big player for um uh, more for norwich than for leicester but he does play for a bit they get stan collymore on a free who scores some quite famous uh, and important goals but in march of this year emil heskey leaves for liverpool for 11 million pounds huge sum of money at the time and i think it's this summer martin o'neill leaves to go to celtic so it feels like a good way to kind of bring it all all round. I mean, because within two years, they're going to be relegated. So did you have a sense of that it was going to come apart as fast as it did? No, I thought if they could appoint the right manager, then, then you know, they'd have the pieces to to stay there for a bit because it's not like you kind of thought they would be immediately in danger from kind of, you know, from mid-table stability that they would immediately kind of slip. Um, and, you know, you, you, you'd have thought that Peter Taylor would be a sort of a safe pair of hands and so they kind of finished 13th the next season which you know is not as good as it had been before but but certainly not terrible but then they just yeah they they have this awful awful time in in 2001 2002 where they just continually chop and change you know and they, they kind of they sack taylor on the 30th of september they have 10 days of gary parker and then and then they this is the really bizarre appointment. They bring in Dave Bassett, who is the kind of Allardyce of his day or the Neil Warnock of his day. But he's not really done anything on the positive side of the ledger in English football for quite a long time at this point. And that ends up being a complete disaster. And then they bring in Mickey Adams. And by then it's kind of too late, really. And they they go down. And I think if I'm right, does Mickey Adams bring them back up at some point and then they just go straight back down again? Yeah, they they bounce back immediately, but go straight back down. It's it's that season where the bottom of the league is done by, you know, March and Wolves, Leeds and Leicester all go down without much of a fight. They've come up too early, I guess you could say. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, they're, they're gone. They're into the wilderness. They'll be relegated to League One before they can ever find their way back up. And we all know how the story ends up after that. As, as well as managerial changes, I think the other thing that's really eye-catching is they start to spend a lot of money and they spend it badly. So Taylor spends, I assume it's Taylor, I might be giving him the uh, the blame here, but whoever is responsible for the purse strings at Leicester spends as much in that first season after O'Neill leaves as they'd spent during the whole O'Neill era combined. And uh, the, the real eye-catching one is uh, the signing of Adi Akinbayi from Wolves for £5 million. Uh, obviously, that's pretty much, you know, the entire transfer budget for for some of those seasons um, uh, in one player. And yeah, it's, I think the fact that Coventry fans were going to call him Adi Baddy by tells you exactly how that went down. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of decent signs. Gary Rowett was a good signing, but but yeah, on on the whole, you'd have to say that that sort of um, the transfer business that they do um, to try and refresh. The O'Neill squad because kind of wasn't wasn't there really. I guess if you if you use someone like Heskey, it's one of the big boys. Doesn't uh, doesn't O'Neill come and poach Lennon not too long after? And Guppy. So the out list is as interesting as the the ins. So uh, as as they're bringing all these players in, Zagarakis is out, Arfaxad's out, Ian Marshall's out, Fenton, Cotty, Walsh, Collymore, Neil Lennon, and then the following season, Guppy. 
it, it joins them as it goes up to Celtic as well. And, and Rowett's already off to Celtic within a year. So the best of those buys is doesn't last all that long. Celtic, did I say then? <laughs> Gary Rowett's off to Charlton, I meant to say, um, within the uh, course of a year. So the best of the buys doesn't really work out long term either. Uh, I think that's probably as good a place to kind of wrap it this up as as anywhere we know because we know what's going to happen uh just before we do though any kind of final thoughts on on the team or, or on kind of what o'neill brought to them or or you know how it maybe influenced the the years that are going to follow it's kind of a perfect stretch really isn't it you know he's not overstayed his welcome he's not fallen off the boil i mean he, he's gone to a i guess you'd argue a bigger club uh in Celtic, but you know it, it's not a it doesn't quite feel the same as it would do if he'd left to take the United job or something like that, if you see what I'm saying. So it, it's a moment in time. He left them in a good place. Um, it just didn't work. It's what, what the power of that team was, was clearly how O'Neill had them playing. Uh, I think with um, O'Neill is a really underrated manager, given everything that he achieved. In the game, I think he probably deserves to be spoken about uh, a, a lot more highly than than he is. Um, if you if you take what he did at Leicester, an unfashionable second tier side that he turned into consistent top ten performers um, who reach multiple League Cup finals, um, break a trophy hoodoo that's existed since the 1960s. You know, and also makes the club money in developing Heskey to the point that a couple of Liverpool want to buy him. Goes to Celtic, dominance absolutely makes Rangers almost an irrelevance over that that period of time that he's at Celtic. Goes to Villa, Villa gets as close as they were likely to in terms of breaking into that top four. And you know, I guess you could say that his time at Sunderland was a bit more was a bit more mixed um, and his time with the Republic of Ireland, he probably didn't go to that job at the point where there was lots of, lots of great Irish talent, but you'd say that he still, he did as much as he could with the talent that was available to that international side. So the only thing you could say is missing from O'Neill's CV would be managing at a, at a Man United or a Liverpool or, or an Arsenal or something. But I guess you know, I guess probably that bitter experience burnt him out to the point where maybe that wasn't a possibility after that. But certainly a brilliant football manager and and what he did for Leicester City meant that when they did have that resurgence under under the three managers, under first under Pierce and avoiding that relegation, then under Ranieri winning that league, and then under Brendan Rodgers, you know, going into Europe, it doesn't feel you know, I know everyone said that that kind of Leicester title win felt like, you know, bizarro world and stuff, but it didn't feel entirely inappropriate because of the profile that O'Neill had given Leicester. It felt like they should at least be a top division team and then being a top 10 team doesn't feel outlandish, you know. And of course, now they've got, you know, some time money behind them and so on. So, you know, you'd expect them to be a fixture for a lot longer yet. As for O'Neill, he would always be linked with those big jobs, really, until he takes the Sunderland job and that kind of scotches them for forever, really. Uh, I'll probably save my thoughts, not just because we've run quite long here, but also because I have 
no doubt at some point we'll come back and do the Villa episode and I'm going to have plenty to say when we do that. So that's it. We will finish up there. Thanks to everyone who's listened to us all season long. And we will be back for one more show before a little break. Those of us you've listened to us for a while will know that it's our team of the season. That'll be coming up next week. Please join us for that. Till next time, we'll see you then.